Well, last week, we uh, jumped back into our study of Paul's letter to the Romans, the study we're calling the Gospel of God. And we'd been away on a summer break for about seven weeks. And so last week, we did kind of an overview. If you were here, you'll remember of Romans 1 through 5, uh, just helping us to get reconnected to some of the flow of Paul's thought with what we we learned earlier uh, this year. Today and next week, we're also going to back up a little bit, take a second look at a couple of passages that we did study in June uh, because I felt God leading me during uh, my study leave in July to just really dig into some uh, doctrines And I really believe that God has been leading me uh, to teach you uh, what I've been learning. And I'm pretty excited about it. I hope you will be excited too over the next couple of weeks. And what we're going to be doing is studying what some have called uh, the most important doctrine no one knows about. It's called the doctrine of our union with Christ. And many of you hear that and you're probably right now, you don't have to admit it, but you're like, I don't know what that means. I've never heard of that before. So I hope this will help us because today and next week, we're going to go back and look at some passages uh, here in Romans. We talked briefly about this doctrine when we did it before, but we're going to dig into it uh, in some depth uh, over the next couple of weeks. So we're in Romans 5 verses 12 to 21. Next week, we're going to study the first 11 verses of chapter 6. Today's message is called United with Christ part one. So you already know what the next week's message is going to be called. And um, what this two weeks is about is we are going to be digging into the answer of a hugely important question. And here's the question. How does the Bible describe the nature of the relationship between God and his people in Jesus? What does the Bible say that relationship is like. And if I could boil that question down and make it really crystal clear to you, what does it mean to be a Christian? That's what we're going to be talking about. See, like if one of your friends who isn't a Christ follower asked you to tell them what it means to be a Christian, what would you say? Just think about that. See, it's easy for us to kind of subtly reduce Christianity to its individual parts. And maybe we would say it's about forgiveness of sins. Maybe we would talk about how we get to avoid hell. Everybody for avoiding hell. Amen. Or we get to go to heaven. Amen for that one too. Maybe it's about knowing the right doctrine. I think that a lot of us, if you've known Christ for a while, would probably say something like this. Christianity is a relationship with God and you would be absolutely right in saying that. But that statement ought to evoke another question, if you think about it, what kind of relationship? Because we have all kinds of different relationships with different people and situations, right? See, we have functional and dysfunctional relationships. Do you have one or the other? You can raise your hand, functional or dysfunctional. I'm not gonna ask you which one, but see, we all have some of each probably. Um, We have formal and informal relationships with people. We have intimate and shallow relationships. And some of us have loving and some of us have abusive relationships. There's lots of kinds of relationships. So when we talk about having a relationship with God in Jesus, we just cannot assume that we're all really on the same page about what that relationship actually would look like. And so the question I want to add to this is what kind of relationship does God offer us in Jesus? That's what we're going to be talking about as we study union with Christ. I don't know if you remember You know, a couple weeks ago, somebody in Florida, I call him Florida man, uh, won that $1.58 billion lottery. You remember that? Just, I think, about three weeks ago. And um, I was reading about it. They'll probably take the lump sum payout, which is $783.3 million. Really, it's not that great, you know, when you think about it. (laughs) But it's not even as good as that because... Federal government withholding is going to take about 24% because they even touch it. And so they're only going to get like 
uh, $595.3 million. And then there's like other taxes, which will take it down to only $493.5 million. So you shouldn't feel bad because you didn't buy the right ticket, okay? <laughs> but you know what would be really bad? It would be really bad if that person, Florida man, never turned in their winning ticket. And I was just thinking, it's sort of like many Christ followers who just live their whole lives unaware of the riches that are theirs in Jesus, unaware of the nature of the relationship that God has created for us in Christ. And maybe that's been you. Maybe that's been you. This relationship, as I am telling you, is um, often described um, as our union with Christ. Union's kind of a funny word. We don't always use it. Um, one of the ways we use it often is to speak of marriage, right? So marriage is a union between a man and a woman. And, and this word union is meant to point to this deep and profound personal relationship of oneness between Jesus and his people. Now, in this union, the Bible is clear. We do not become God. That's another religion. Uh, we don't get absorbed into God. Uh, we don't lose ourselves in God. The creature or creator distinction still remains, but there's this incredibly unique and profound relationship of belonging to God that is forged in us in Jesus. And, and one of the reasons that I'm so excited to talk to you about this is I know there is no relationship offered to a human being with more meaning, more intimacy, more security, more satisfaction, more joy, more hope, more love, more faithfulness, more forgiveness than the relationship we have in Christ. You see, every human being longs for a relationship like this. And the reason is God made us for a relationship like this with him. And this is actually a doctrine. It's kind of unfamiliar to most of us today, but it's, it's been an uh, important and significant doctrine that scholars have studied and written and talked about over the last 2,000 years. Here's just a couple of quotes. I won't mention the names of the theologians right now because most of you probably won't even know who they are, but they're great, great quotes. Union with Christ, first quote, is the greatest, most honorable and glorious of all graces that we are made partakers of. Another one says, there are no benefits of the gospel apart from union with Christ, but with it, we really do possess all things. Someone else says, union with Christ is the fountainhead from which flows the Christians every spiritual blessing. Repentance and faith, pardon, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, glorification, I don't know if any of you have ever heard of a 12th century monk named Bernard of Clairvaux. He's pretty famous for some things. Some of you may have heard about him, but he really loved this topic of union with Christ. And he one time decided he was going to study it by using the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs as kind of a springboard into this topic. And he wrote 86 sermons on the topic of union with Christ from the first chapter of the Song of Songs. You thought this series was long. <laughs> See, we could really talk about union with Christ for months, but right now, just two weeks, and yet most of us don't know about it. Let me tell you part of why that's kind of a tragedy. But part, partly you're gonna find out that this has been staring you in the face all the time. I'll start right here. Do you know that the term Christian, that's the most common term we use to describe ourselves usually, is only mentioned three times in the New Testament. Acts 11, Acts 26, 1 Peter 4. Christianity is referred to as the way five times in the book of Acts. So, you know, if you're going by numbers, we should call it the way um, more than Christianity um, and then there's um, other options like uh, saints. Christians are referred to as saints 61 times uh, in the New Testament. But listen to this, by far the most common expression 
used to describe followers of Jesus, especially in Paul, is this little phrase that you just skip by all the time in Christ. Paul uses this phrase 164 times in his letters. And it goes to over 200 times if you count phrases like in Jesus or in the Lord or in God, which mean the same thing. Paul uses also many other phrases like into Christ or with Christ or through Christ to describe this new relationship. And so when you really read Paul, it's crystal clear that for Paul to be in Christ is what it means to be a Christian. And maybe we should start thinking of what it means to follow Jesus like that ourselves. I'll give you some examples of where he uses it, not 164, okay? Um, but a, a few, Romans 6.23, he says we have eternal life in Christ. Romans 8.1, he says uh, we are justified in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.2, he says we are sanctified in Christ. Romans 8.30, he says we are glorified in Christ. Or 1 Corinthians 15. 22, we are made alive in Christ. Ephesians 1, 4, we are predestined in Christ. Colossians 3, 1, we are raised in Christ. Galatians 3, 6, we are adopted as children of God in Christ. I think we could go on and on. So what does it mean to be in Christ? It's very clear that Paul would tell us that's how we should see ourselves, but what, is it, what does it mean? And, and it's, it's so clear in the New Testament that the authors believe that everything in the Christian life flows out of this reality of being in Christ. Now, it's bigger than just that prepositional phrase. Uh, the New Testament also uses a wealth of metaphors to describe the relationship that God creates with his people in Christ. Some, some theologians have estimated that as many as 96 different kinds of metaphors are used to describe this unique, profound re- nature of the relationship God has with his people. For example, it's like the relationship of marriage and yet more intimate. It's like the relationship of living stones mortared together in a building yet more secure. It's like the relationship of members of a human body and yet more profound. It's like the relationship of a vine to its branches and yet more dynamic. It's like the relationship of a shepherd to his sheep and yet more personal. It's like the relationship of adopted sons and daughters to a perfect father, members of a new family and yet far more profoundly loving. Maybe you're wondering why does the New Testament employ so many different metaphors to describe this relationship? Like why not, you know, just marriage or why not just family or citizens or sheep or something? Do you know why? It's because No single metaphor captures the essence of this relationship God creates with his people in Jesus. It takes all of them together to fill us with just the beginning of a sense of the profundity and the depth and the beauty of this relationship. See, if you step back and try to look at all of these terms and prepositions and metaphors, these biblical themes, these relationships that describe our relationship with God in Christ. It's just astonishing. So how do we kind of boil it down? You know, how do you kind of sum it up? And you know, what do we find in this set of prepositions and met- metaphors, multi-layered realities and biblical themes that describe this unique multi-dimensional relationship belonging that we have with God. And here's how you say it in short. It's real simple. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. And the New Testament gives us both of those things. This relationship that we have with God through Christ in Christ is unlike any other relationship available to a human being. It is more durable, longer lasting, more personal, infinitely safer. It is more meaningful than any other relationship we could ever have. And I I hope that you are getting something I just have to drive home as we talk about this. This union with Christ is not some 
abstract, academic, theological idea that scholars like to ponder. Far, far more than that. As I said already, to be in Christ is what it means to be a Christian. And therefore, it says so much to you for your life today, tomorrow, every day, until you go home to be with Jesus. See, this is what it means to be saved. (laughs) Salvation is radically and personally and profoundly relational. So with all that in mind, what is Paul telling us in our text today? In verses 12 through 21 of Romans 5, Paul shows us two key ideas that I think will help us begin uh, to get a grasp on what union with Christ means for our lives. And we'll, we'll look at some more ideas later as we go into chapter six. So first of all, you can write this down if you're taking notes in the app or wherever. Uh, to be in Christ means first, Jesus now represents us forever. Jesus now represents us forever. So maybe you remember, I, you know, I harbor no illusions that you remember what I preached to you a couple months ago. Most of the time, I'm not even sure until I check out my records. Um, so you may not remember. We talked a lot about uh, how in these verses, Paul reveals that all humanity is represented by one of two representatives. Look at verse 12 again. Paul begins by explaining, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and that is Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. See, Paul is telling us there that Adam is the representative head of all humanity. In other words, his actions set the trajectory of human experience for all time. And so when he sinned, his guilt and his sinful inclinations, what we call a sinful nature, were passed on to us. And we're Americans, so we don't like that. Like, Adam was an idiot. (laughs) We talked about how we want to think we wouldn't have done that. But here's the reality. Adam was perfect in creation and he fell. I mean, I don't know how long it took for that to happen. If it took this long for him to do it, here's how long it would have taken for you to do it, right? We, we all would have done that. And, and, and so this representation is not something unfair. It's just reality that the fall didn't just impact his life. It's impacted every life since. We're all born, Paul says, in Adam. Remember the story of reality we talked about last year. This is the story of reality. This is God's story of reality. And this means that the problem of sin in all of our lives is not just an individual problem. It's not merely individual acts of sin. Because Adam represents us, we now share in his guilt, in his sin nature. And what Paul has been telling us, you can go back to what we've studied earlier in Romans. This means we don't merely need our past sins forgiven. We need to be born again. We need a new righteousness. We need to be brought under new leadership. We need a new representative. We need to enter into a new reality with a new nature. That's what Paul is driving home here. He's he's telling us about this matter of representation, who we are in. And let me just say this. If, If you find this idea of representation strange, it's actually all around us. Maybe you just never thought about it. Attorneys represent us in court, right? You know, if you're in a union, you have a a union rep that represents you. If you're a baseball fan and your team wins walk-off bottom of the ninth, what do you say? We won. And the only thing you did is you laid in your recliner eating chips and salsa, right? But... You say we won. So you get this idea. Uh, I'll bring it out broader. It's in our politics, right? We have a representative in the House of Representatives who represents us, whether we like him or not. And you know, when the president of the United States acts, it impacts us as citizens. Why? Because he represents us. His acts and his reality become our reality. And you can say, he's not my president all you want but you're not living in reality. (laughs) Because if you're a citizen of this country, 
then he is your president. He represents us and therefore his leadership and his decisions impact us, our reality. And these are just small, you know, kind of daily examples of the the cosmic reality Paul is describing. Look back to the text, verse 15. He says, but the free gift, and he's talking here about this beautiful saving relationship that we, we have um, with God through Jesus as a free gift to us. But the free gift is not like the trespass, what Adam did. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Now, keep tracking here. Look at the next few verses and pick up the logic that Paul is working out. He's saying death abounded in Adam. By contrast, grace abounds in Jesus. Verse 16, and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation in Adam, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So condemnation comes in Adam. Justification comes in Jesus. Verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Again, death reigns in Adam, life reigns in Jesus, their representatives. Verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness from Christ leads to justification and life for all men. Do you see what Paul keeps hitting again and again and again? He's just driving it home. Verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Paul is just giving us this extended parallel. He's contrasting and he's comparing what it means to be an Adam as opposed to what it means to be in Christ. He says, in Adam, there is sin and judgment and ultimately death, but praise God in Christ, there's righteousness and justification and ultimately life. In Adam, death reigns. In Christ, life reigns. Judgment comes through Adam. Justification comes through Christ. And this is why Paul elsewhere talks about Jesus being the second Adam because Jesus came to reverse the curse, to reverse the consequences of Adam's sin, to serve as a new representative head for a brand new, redeemed, saved humanity. And here's the reality Every single human being is found either in Adam or in Christ. It's no exaggeration to say that the most important question facing all of us is, who do you find yourself in? Are you in Adam or are you in Christ today? And Paul makes this point in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, uh, where he says, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. See, every human being, we're we're represented whether we want to or not, whether we believe it or not, whether we want to think about it or not, we are represented by Adam or by Jesus. We are either in Adam or we are in Christ. We are either in union with Adam or we are in union with Christ. And therefore, do not miss it. The gospel call, the good news The gracious invitation of God to all people is a call to come out of Adam and come into Christ. To turn from Adam's representation in your life and surrender to Jesus' representation in your life. And so if you hear that, then the question becomes, well, how? How do we come out of Adam and we we get found in Christ. And the answer is found in something Paul's been talking about all through Romans. In this text, we see an important term in verses 16 and 19. It's that term justification. And this is a legal courtroom term. Maybe remember when we talked about this. Uh, To be justified is for sinners to be legally declared not guilty, but righteous and accepted by God. And we talked about how it's not merely just being forgiven, wipe the slate clean, you stuff in your past, but it is counted righteous now and into the future with the perfect spotless record of Jesus. And that's what Paul's talking about here in 
Romans 5. He talks about the free gift of righteousness, verse 15. And again, verse 19, he says, being made righteous. And we've discussed this already. This righteousness is not our own. It is the righteousness Jesus earned during his earthly life. And he credits that to our account. He takes our unrighteousness and gives us his righteousness so that we can be declared righteous in God's sight. He he confers what we would describe as a legal standing on us, declares us accepted and loved and recipients of his favor, living under his smile, not because of anything we've done, but only because of what Jesus has done for us. We are in Christ under his righteousness as his representative justified in him. Now, there's something interesting that I think is going on right now as we think about this term justification. I think most of us hear it and it sounds like this big kind of legal, you even heard me use the word legal term. You you know, I said courtroom and it, it sounds real formal. It sounds like this big mental intellectual thing that we think about. And, and I think when we hear justification, I think we don't, we don't tend to think, you know, I just want to give someone a hug right now. It's not real warm and fuzzy, is it, in our minds? The justification sounds kind of cold and clinical, right? Well, what I want to tell you is when we think that, we're wrong. Because justification is not in any way meant to be this cold, clinical, formal term. Just think about it this way. We know that some of the closest relationships we have with other people are both legal and relational, right? To be married is both a legal act and a relational act, right? I just want to check here, okay? Halfway through the sermon, are we still listening, right? Just need to check. So to be married is both legal and relational. Second relationship, we can think about adoption. Adoption is both a legal act and a relationship act, right? So think about it. Is it any surprise that the two main metaphors the New Testament uses to describe our relationship with God and Jesus Marriage, adoption. See, justification is both legal and relational. So when you hear justification, here's what you should think. Think of a husband who is zealous to remove any and every obstacle that gets in the way of him marrying his bride, legal or otherwise. When you hear justification, think of an adoptive father who will do everything, spare no expense to get rid of every obstacle that gets in the way of him adopting his kids, legal or otherwise. That's what justification is. It is the profound love of God empowering Jesus to be like that husband who must have his bride to be like that father who must adopt these children. And he will remove every obstacle He will pay every debt in order to bring his bride and his kids into a new reality where they are represented by him. It is legal and it is relational. This jealous, passionate, loving, merciful father will do whatever it takes to redeem his people. Our sin is credited to him. His perfect life is credited to us. He took what we deserve on the cross. We get what he deserves in him. He takes our unrighteousness. Uh, We get his righteousness. He took our guilt so that we can be counted innocent in him. Why? Because he's our representative. It's all rooted in this concept. We are in Christ, amen? Therefore, that means all that is his is ours because we are in him. His life is our life. His death becomes our death. His victory is our victory. His achievements, ours. His righteousness, ours. The love that is his from the Father is now our love in him because we're in Christ. Jesus shares everything that he has with us, making us one with him, bringing us into this relationship. And do you see, if you get this, do you see 
doesn't it change everything? If you really, truly, profoundly understand and begin to live out of it, this reality. There's so many things we could talk about uh, today in this regard, but you guys never listen fast enough, so I can't tell you everything I've been learning. Um, But first of all, let me just point this out. The Christian life is not meant to be one of perpetual uncertainty. And some of us live there far too often. Why do I say that? Well, because of union with Christ. Now, we'll talk about this later. The Bible does make a distinction between what theologians call union with Christ and communion with Christ. Union is this unchanging, stable relationship. Nothing can take it away. It's carried out by God's work in Christ. Communion is our experience of that relationship. And that, of course, kind of waxes and wanes sometimes. And, but when you understand this, the Christian life is not meant to be perpetually uncertain because we have in Jesus, we are in Jesus, we have a representative head and he is a representative head of a permanent and unchanging relational reality. Wherever we go, we are his and he is ours. Now listen to Charles Spurgeon famous pastor in London from the 1800s. He says, remember that he sees us now in Christ. Behold, he has put his people into the hands of his dear son. He has even put us into Christ's body. He sees us in Christ to have died, in him to have been buried, in him to have risen again as the Lord Jesus Christ is well-pleasing to the Father. So in him, we are well-pleasing to the Father also for our being in him identifies us with him. If then our acceptance with God stands on the footing of Christ's acceptance with God, it stands firmly and it is an unchanging argument with the Lord God for doing us good He says, if we stood before God in our own individual righteousness, our ruin would be sure and speedy. But in Jesus, he says, our life is hid beyond peril. That's a good quote. See what Spurgeon and Paul both are saying is Jesus' representation of us gives us freedom from wondering where we stand with God. You don't ever have to wonder anymore. He fully loves us. He will never give up on us. He is committed to us. He he offers us his love so freely and gladly because that's how good he is. This means that we don't have to get lost in endless self-centered introspection thinking about our sin all the time, wondering where we stand with him today, wondering if he still loves us. It means we're actually free to enjoy God without uncertainty because we know he loves us. Some of you all the time find yourself wondering, have I prayed enough? Have I read the Bible enough? Am I doing enough good things to counteract the bad stuff I do. You're always wondering about that. You're keeping score. God doesn't keep score. When you wonder, can God still love me after what I've done? You need to remember I am in Christ. I am in Christ. The question is never how righteous am I? The question is never how am I doing? The question is always how righteous is the one who represents me. And only when we see those questions can we rest in God as our all-sufficient Savior. He is perfectly righteous yesterday, today, and forever. All that is his is ours, and uh, all that is ours he's taken. So this means we have received like an entirely new identity, this new standing, because Jesus represents us forever. Forever. So I said that word identity. Let's talk about that for a moment. This representation that is ours in Christ 
It has to change our understanding of who God is and who we are. And therefore, it has to recalibrate our identity because of all the blessings and benefits and achievements and honor and glory that belong to Jesus. That means all those things are ours because we are in him, our union with him, because he is our forever representative. He shares all that is his with us. And that leads to the second thing I want you to see. You can write this down. Flowing out of representation, Jesus gives us a new identity forever. A new identity forever. And when you understand this truth, this is, will begin to explain why Paul says some crazy things somewhere some places that are really like hard to understand. For example, 1 Corinthians 3, 21 uh, through 23 says, for all things are yours. What? The world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. Why? Because you are Christ's. And we can't even understand these words unless we understand that we are united with, with Christ the world is mine. I don't even own my car. <laughs> Life is mine, the present, the future. Yes, but not because of anything we've done, but because of who we are, because of who represents us. All things are ours because we are in Christ. And that's why the New Testament is just stuffed full of these different aspects of what it means to be a new creation in Christ, about our identity in Christ. And we, we talk about this a lot as a church because it's really life-changing. And I wanna mention something that's so important about getting union with, with Christ and understanding it. It's important for us to not separate the benefits of Christ from Christ himself. And I think this is why many of us falter in our spiritual walk. We're all focused on what the stuff Jesus gets for us and we kind of forget that the real treasure is Jesus himself. It's easy to get kind of diverted into these beautiful benefits, you know, forgiveness and redemption and adoption and reconciliation and, and kind of, you know, care more about them sometimes than, than actually, you know, Jesus himself. That's why in Christ is so important because it keeps pushing us back to what matters, the person of Christ. We're in relationship with Jesus and it's out of that relationship that the benefits flow to us. See, that's how we have these new statuses. The, the Bible talks about justification, forgiveness and reconciliation and adoption. You know, in Christ, we are made participants in all that God is doing. And we have flowing out of that a new hope and joy and purpose and perspective. We're part of a new people. We have a new future on and on. That's why Paul says to us in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that we are new creations in Christ because we've been brought out of Adam into Christ. And here's what I'm driving at here. All of these realities should lead inexorably to a brand new understanding of who we are, a brand new identity. That's why the Bible says we're born again. You know, Christianity is not about turning over a new leaf. It's about getting a new life. It's a total change and revolution. We're, we're being born into a new fabric of realities that define who we are. We have this new identity and I want you to hear it doesn't matter how dedicated and how spiritual and how mature and how committed you may think you are or aren't. If you are in Christ, everything I'm talking about is for you. Full stop. No exceptions. We have a new identity this has nothing to do with what we've done, how many times we've failed. It has everything to do with who we are because of who represents us. I think one of my favorite illustrations of this um, is Princess Kate and William. You remember all the media coverage? This is back in 2011 when they got married. Um, one reason there was so much coverage of this story of their marriage is that Kate, you remember this, I don't know if you do, but prior to entering this relationship, she was just an ordinary British citizen. And then she got married. An ordinary British citizen now married to royalty. 
And the moment that union occurred, her whole identity changed. And it didn't matter what she felt like waking up during her honeymoon or any day since this. I don't feel like a princess. I mean, some of you feel like a princess and you're not, but (laughs) that's something else, another sermon. But whether she felt it or not, reality is she's a princess. And it does take time, doesn't it, for something that is different, that is now true of us to become this kind of felt reality for us. But this is what happens, is what should happen when we surrender our lives to Jesus because we enter into this whole new relational reality. We get a new identity because Jesus defines who we are now as our representative head. And this is so crucial for us to understand if we're gonna get what Christianity is about I keep pounding on this because our world has got this so backwards, upside down, wrong. And here's what I want you to to remind yourself always. God declares what is most true about us, not us, not our culture, and not our emotions. Some of you need to hear that one. And not our family. Some of you need to hear that one. And not our career. Some of you need to hear that one. And not our past and not how we've been wounded and not what people think of our appearance. Nothing else defines us. Only God. And again, you need to see our identity is bound up in him as our representative. And therefore, he is the one who defines what is most true about us. And I keep hitting this. I said some things about it last week. I want to say it again. You need to hear it. Some of you have been seduced by this. It is not true. And it is so destructive in your life. Our culture is always telling us every day we define ourselves. We create our identities. We are free to define reality and make our realities in any way we want. And that seems so normal to so many of us because we've heard it so often. It gets beat into our heads all the time, all around us. But like I said last week, we're the first culture in the history of the world to think that our fundamental identity is whatever we want. We're the first culture in the history of the world to think that we have the ability to define what it means to be free, to define what it means to be human. It is not true. It is not true. Freedom and life and meaning and personal identity are not self-determined. They're not self-created. You can tell yourself that all you want. It doesn't make it true. I think um, one of my favorite illustrations of this um, comes from something. This is, I'm just telling some of you ahead of time, this is going to be painful for you, uh, this illustration. So just get yourself ready, you know, buckle your seatbelts or something. But this comes from the movie Frozen. (laughs) And the earworm is rearing up right now, huh? Yeah, in some of our heads. I apologize in advance. Those of you who have young daughters, um, you've probably seen the movie a hundred times. You know all the songs. You don't want to ever hear them again. (laughs) So you know about kind of climax of a lot of the movie. Elsa freaks out on Coronation Day. She runs into the wilderness. She begins to sing her most famous song. And I'm, I'm your pastor and I love you. So I'm not even going to say the name of the song. But if you've listened to the lyrics of that song, you know it is just like all about how I get to find my reality. I get to be whoever I want to be, that my identity uh, is found in myself and I, I can define who I want to be, blah, 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 blah. But do you remember, if you've seen the movie, <laughs> that while she is singing this song about all this freedom and things that she's so excited about. What's she doing? She's all alone in the middle of nowhere making an ice prison for herself. Never has a culture talked more about freedom and experienced it less. Amen? See, in attempting to define our own understanding of what freedom is, we have become enslaved and we have become all alone. 
in attempting to allow our own inner person to define what is most real and who we are and how I feel about things, that has actually enslaved us and has actually kept us from the very thing that we're searching for all along, freedom and life and joy. And I have to ask, is this not the reason why anxiety and depression and suicide are higher than any time in recent years? Now, I'm sure explanations and causes are very complex. Life is like that. But I think it's impossible to ponder on this and think that it doesn't have something to do with the fact that our culture incessantly tells us we don't know who we are and so therefore we have to create our own identities. And here's what I'm telling you today. The answer to all this is union with Christ. Because we can only discover ourselves in relationship with the one who made us. I mean, that just makes sense, right? We are not to be, we are not made to be self-made. We, we cannot bear the weight of architecting our own reality. We are meant to live along the grooves of reality that the creator has created. And we can only understand truly ourselves, who we are, in relationship with the God who made us and loves us in Jesus Christ, his son, we will only know what it means to be fully human by being in relationship with the one who created humans, God, our savior. If we are in Christ, here's what Paul is telling us. You and I become more of who we are, not less. See, our real identity, our true self is found in him. Why? Because Jesus represents you because Jesus has given you a new identity. Write this down and ponder it throughout this week. Our relationship with the living God in Christ as our representative is our most defining relationship. That's reality. Are you living that reality? And it means in Christ, we don't have to wonder about his love for us. It means in Christ, we can rest and get off the treadmill of performance, always trying to prove ourselves. It means in Christ, we no longer have to frantically try to justify ourselves because we are already fully justified in him. In Christ, it means that we don't have to exhaust ourselves. And some of us are so tired trying to prove that we're worthy, trying to manage our reputations, trying to make somebody love us. We don't have to do that because somebody, the most important somebody already loves us. And he's a good father and he has given his only son to show us he loves us. Just imagine right now how you would feel if you were actually day by day living into those realities. I mean, this is, do you see it? It's the essence of Christianity. This is why we come through those doors and sit in this room and sing these songs and study God's word and serve and help children go to know Christ and get in life groups, all the things we do. It's all about this, every bit of it. Christianity is meant to transform everything. And the way it does it is through us being in Christ, through this personal, profound, dynamic relationship that God has created for us as his people in Jesus. See, in closing, um, as I was uh, preparing this week, I, I thought about American Idol. One of TV's most popular shows, do you know this? 21 years now. <laughs> and um, I, a lot of us used to watch it, don't watch it anymore. Some of you are idol worshipers, you know what I'm talking about here. <laughs> but you watch it, you still watch it, 21 years going. But whether you watch it now or you used to watch it, you probably know how at the end of the season, after all the drama and all the votes and all the phone calls and all, all the different stuff happens. One winner is crowned and the confetti falls and there's the standing ovations. And then you remember this, they always hand the microphone to the winner to sing one last time, right? Now, 
What is actually so awesome about that moment is that now the winner is not singing to win. They're singing because they already won. Winning is no longer on the line. They've won. They sing out of the overflow of the victory that is now theirs. And do you see it? This is why we sing. It's why we sing. We're not on the line anymore. We're not trying to prove anything. We're not singing to win. We're singing because we have won in Christ. And that changes everything, doesn't it? Nothing to prove anymore. We can sing and live in joy and freedom and hope and meaning because we are in Christ because he represents us because he has given us a new identity that we are forever fully chosen and crowned in him. And so all we need to do is sing out of that reality, live out of that reality, rejoice out of that reality, just soak in his grace as we serve him and love him and tell other people about how good he is. We have a new identity. We are in Christ. We are in Christ. See, it is, it is not an exaggeration to say that the deepest longings in our hearts are most fully satisfied only in Jesus. Jesus is who you've been looking for all your life. It's him. It's not anybody else. It's not anything else. It's Jesus. And once we see that, then we know what it means to be a Christian. Our union with Christ, we are united with Christ. And so non-Christian, if someone is here today and you don't know Christ, then the invitation is come out of Adam, come into Christ by repentance of your sins and faith in what Jesus has done for you. You can become part of his family today. And then if you already know him, if you are already in Christ, then the call, then the invitation is simply live out of what is true. Live in the reality that God has declared over you. You are in Christ and Christ is in you and there is no better news that anyone could ever hear. This is God's word, Southwinds, for us today. Would you say amen? Amen. amen. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray together. Father God, we would just want to say thank you. And thank you seems so insufficient in light of all the riches of what you've done for us, but it's the words we have. Thank you for representing us, for justifying us, for doing all that you did, removing every obstacle that would get in the way of us being in you. We believe, Lord, today that there's nothing better than being in Christ through your son, being in, in your son Christ. So Lord, help us to learn to live out of the realities of all that you are for us, our representative. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said.